welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, what's up, everybody? Good morning. If you're listening to this in the morning, it's morning for me, nice and early. No one's even awake. I'm just sipping on my coffee, warming up my vocal cords, planning on singing you a few folk songs, folklore, maybe play harmonica for you guys this morning. Uh, Well, no, that wouldn't go good. Can't do that. I've got a bunch of questions that I've actually pulled off several of my private messages uh, which is going to not only give me some content to talk about, which you're obviously wanting to hear about, uh, but most importantly, it's helping me dig through that pile. So on that subject, everyone out there needs to know that literally there are hundreds of messages coming into my boxes every day. And Literally, by the time I reply to someone, they're already buried so far down that you're, you know, I'm just sitting there having to scroll continually to try to follow up with some people. And sometimes I'm successful with it and sometimes I'm not. Um, I do my best and I dedicate a few hours every day to answering questions. So if you get yours answered, high five. Thanks for sending it. If you don't, um, you never know. I may get to it um, just as I plow through sometimes, or um, sometimes you might have to ask again and get it kind of filtered back to the top. But, you know, realize I'm not answering everyone's questions nine hours a day. So uh, I would ask to make sure you actually um, kind of focus on asking things that you know I haven't talked about uh, multiple times which I understand that's going to happen. There's only so many subjects in archery, but uh, sometimes when I get questions specifically about what arrows should I use, um, I just bought my bow, what arrows should I use, Like that's uh, not a question. I'm not going to go look at an arrow chart for you. You could go and just Google shaft selector and type in your information and find your own arrow shaft uh, without having to have me dig through it. But the next form of information that I'm going to give you is a little Easter egg. Since Easter's coming up Sunday, I'm giving you this little Easter egg. So I have, I think, coordinated what I feel is going to be one of the best um hunting hunter knock to fork experiences this is something that's actually came to light because i was already going to be out at the total archery challenge for um something that i'm doing specifically for cabela's and easton however my thought was um to actually hold a very cool school slash experience slash contest and it seems like uh, this is 90% or maybe even 95% uh, 
uh, finalized and getting ready to go in action. Uh, we're just finalizing price, to be honest with you, for this experience, but I'm giving you a little heads up because I know this is going to sell out. This is going to for sure sell out and you need to be paying attention for it. You need to keep your eyes out for it um, because right now it's March 29th and within the next week, uh, this is going to get announced. And when it gets announced, I know it's going to fill up. Uh, so I want to make sure my loyal listeners, friends out there are going to be able to uh, to jump on this. It's going to be fun. So my thought was I really wanted to, to try to coordinate um, the ability to shoot with a large group and uh, do a mini archery seminar and allow people to shoot and also have a fun shoot and maybe um, maybe even have some team shoots for some prizes. This is going to be a pretty cool prize event. I'm going to tell you that right now. You've got uh, you're definitely going to have more than uh, more than a chance to recoup what the cost of this would be. Um, but the plan is on July. 10th. Um, the plan is for, I'm going to be having an experience at Traeger headquarters in Salt Lake City. The plan is going to be for everyone to fly in, check in, and um, the first day we're going to meet at a shooting facility where the entire group will shoot i'll be able to talk with people individually and then also hold kind of a a big group seminar to talk through several different things for shot processes and um, kind of a very condensed version of what i would do for national teams uh, during a week-long training session so everyone's going to get to shoot i'll be able to look at you i want to try to spend um you know some time with each person to maybe just help you identify a few key things that you need to work on to help you uh, the fastest and then also give you some equipment recommendations, things like that. Then we all jump on a bus and that bus is going to take us to Traeger headquarters where we are going to have a meet and greet with a open bar and a full dinner, which at that dinner we'll get to walk around Traeger headquarters and also we'll be able to get uh, everybody checked in and get meat prepped for the following day, which is going to be amazing. On the second day, we're going to do a full culinary experience at Traeger HQ and I've got two of the best in the business coming to do what I think is going to be the mother of all Nocta Forks. The morning class is going to be held by myself and Chad Ward uh, from Whiskey Bent Barbecue, who is going to be focusing on teaching you all the prep and cook for chicken and pork then we'll have a lunch, and by the way, you'll be getting picked up by the bus in the morning at the host hotel uh, coming to Traeger where we'll have the breakfast and give everyone kind of a little bit of a 
overall look at what's going to happen during that second day. Then Chad's going to dive into uh, pork and chicken. We're going to be able to eat lunch with that, and you're going to learn all kinds of cool stuff. Then, after lunch, my man Meat Church. That's right. I got Chad Ward from Whiskey Bit Barbecue, and we've got none other than Matt Pittman himself coming in for the Meat Church Barbecue side of things to focus on uh, the beef side of the house. We're also going to have, during both those, we're also going to have teaching you turkey, wild turkey, wild pork during Chad's section. Then we'll move into elk and venison during Matt's section, along with traditional beef, pork, and chicken during those same sessions. Then at the end of your second class with uh, me and Matt, we're going to have a little bit of a break, and then we're going to go into team competition cooking your own wild game that you're going to be responsible to bring. We're going to have team rounds where you can cook your own wild game dinner. There's going to be a celebrity guest panel there to judge and critique not only the food and the dishes and the sides that the teams put together from wild game that you bring Um, which is going to be great prizes for that. But we're also going to have a drink competition, making, learning, and serving uh, drinks made on the Traegers. So this is going to be one freaking awesome grilling knock-to-fork showdown. I'm super thankful that Chad and Matt are both coming in for this. Um, also going to have judging uh, by Shazzy Fresh will be there, as well as my man Andy Stumpf. So this is going to be pretty freaking awesome. You're going to want to figure out your recipe. You're going to want to make sure you have a good cut of wild game meat. We're going to want people to be creative. Um, so this is going to be awesome. Traeger Outdoors is going to be the one to announce this experience. Um, I'm sure I'll I'll share it as well. So make sure you have the notifications turned on for my Instagram. So if you're on Instagram and you click on Knock on TV, uh, make sure you go up and turn on the notifications so you know as soon as I make a post because you're going to want to act quick on this experience. It's going to be awesome. Um, I don't know yet whether we'll have time for um, maybe a quick tour of Eastern Hoyt. I might see if I can try to get that worked in as well. Um, Time of year could be a little bit bad because there's going to be new product floating around the factories. So I know normally after July 4th, they're pretty tight. Um, I'm going to see what I can do there, but nevertheless, this is going to be for any of you out there that are wanting to learn how to properly uh, process and prepare and easily grill on your Traeger 
some of the best eating I guarantee you're ever going to have. This is going to be the experience. This is going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to this. And it's a direction that I'm actually going to start going more often here. Uh, for sure with Chad, I know Matt's schedule is really, really busy. But um, at this point, I've, I'm going to owe one to Matt Pittman. So I may have to go down and trade some archery lessons for one of his meat church classes down there at his place. So this is going to be cool. Keep your eyes out for it. I don't know what we're going to call it yet, but it's coming. And I want to make sure all of you that are loyal followers get in on this. It's going to be important. So that's that. <clears throat> Next thing I want to talk on real quick is there's <laughs> this came specifically from, from Carter. There is an influx of releases that are coming back to Carter um, from cracked uh, triggers and those crack triggers are happening from two ways either people um, dropping them uh, and this is you know if you're buying the aftermarket uh, knobs that have a lot more weight on them like the brass ones um, they're really good they're awesome uh, obviously a lot of people like the feel of them but there's also a lot more weight out there and they're a lot taller so if you drop your release and it has a big extended thumb knob on it and it lands the wrong way it you know that's hardened steel so um it ends up shearing off and carter uh you know does fix those but they're also really asking me to let people know that and I think a lot of this is because there's so many of you out there that are changing over from a wrist strap and you've never shot a handheld release, um, so you haven't had to worry about dropping it. But you know, try to pay attention to that. Don't uh, think that you're putting it in your pocket and then just drop it on the floor. There's also quite a few people uh, launching the releases through their bows. Uh, you know, some of that has to do with panic and people freaking out and letting go in the whole release instead of just letting off the safety um, I just really want to make sure people understand that you know you have to keep your fingers bent around those releases if you're relaxing the fingers so much to where that release is out on the very tips of your finger pads then if you lose any of your tension in your back at all and that bow starts to kind of jolt forward and take that release, then it's going to snatch it out of your fingers. Uh, no different than if you pulled a bow back in an archery shop with your fingers and had the bowstring sitting right on the edge of your fingers and the, and the cam jumped forward, you end up dry firing the bow. Essentially, it's the same thing. So be cautious about that. I mean, be mindful of it. Um, and the other thing too is I will be coming out with a video on release maintenance. I want to talk about how to open up a knock to it and clean it properly. Same with the silverback. Um, I'm actually going to work on those this week. So uh, keep your eye out for that too. I know there's a lot of people out there that are a few years in now with their um, knock to its and with their other handheld releases. And this is, this is important no matter what release you have. Um, a lot of those releases, if you're, especially if you're keeping your release in your pocket all the time, or, you know, I have to do it. I do it twice a year for my hunting releases. 
um, because you know just having dust and pocket fuzz and stuff like that in there the tolerances are you know the triggers are so awesome because the tolerances are tight but because the tolerances are tight you also have to make sure you keep them clean so uh, regular maintenance is pretty good to do um, I know like you know Rogan sends me his every year I go through them clean them out for him things like that and um, I think it's important I know down in Lanai uh, that little red super fine red dust it's the same kind of dust that's up in Alberta when you're driving around on the gravel roads it just gets everywhere it gets in your sight it gets on your lenses it gets I mean it gets everywhere um, gets on your cable slide and causes that thing to start to chatter. I mean, that same stuff can get in that release. Um, and you have to clean it out. Keep those tolerances good. They'll function way better as well. You mainly open them up, clean the parts off as best you can. You don't want to, like, pack a bunch of grease or oil in there because that'll actually make it worse. You just want to make sure the parts are clean. If by chance you open it up and you see that your parts are actually starting to maybe have some corrosion on there which is common in areas where the moisture is high that's one thing when people come from very hot or if you're in super super air conditioned and then you go outside if you can see sweat coming off on your bow handle or on your lens will fog up on your binoculars or if your release is getting sweaty and wet, that's telling you that that condensation is happening. And it's happening on the inside of the release as well as the outside. So if that's happening and you're, you know, you're constantly going back and forth in these uh, environments where there's condensation happening at a rapid pace, it's no different than on your cameras or anything else. That corrosion is going to take its toll or that moisture is going to take its toll over time. So if you do open your release up and you notice that some of your parts are starting to rust from maybe being, you know, maybe you had a hunt where you just got absolutely drenched on and you never dried it out properly, then uh, you may just need to call Carter and get some new internals. They're not expensive to buy. Um, so you could, you know, it's smart to do it if you see that you've got corrosion or excessive wear uh for some reason um when i was in france actually with andy it was miserable conditions and you know everything was soaked you know especially my release pouch my release pouch isn't waterproof so my releases were just drenched um so what i did was on our camp stove uh our cook stove that we had in our cabin um i actually took a big metal uh, pot or a, or a big metal bowl and flipped it upside down and then set like a um, kind of a piece of brick on top of that and I set my releases out on that every single uh, day when I got back. So I would look and I could see that they were wet um, but I would go ahead and put them on there so that they would dry out. Um, and not sit there and keep that moisture internally to corrode the parts and worked out really good. So be mindful of that. It's uh, really important maintenance just to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so my next, or my first question here is from, uh, I think it's Jackie Goo. 
Um, saying, uh, hey man, does the cam size make a difference in performance on bows? I'm a 27 and a half inch draw and I just purchased the Hoyt RX-1. Um, and it came in cam size number three. So I'm at the lower end range of this cam size. Should I have gotten the number two can uh, to be on the higher end of that draw range? So one of the great things about the newer cam system is that at least on this one, at, on this model um, or this new cam system uh, with the Hyper ZT, it you don't lose the efficiency going from the high end to the low end of the cam like you have in past models. Some models are worse than others um, when it comes to losing losing efficiency. Um, if I'm totally honest, Hoyt is one of the best for maintaining efficiency. But what you'll find is not necessarily how the cam um, performs when it comes to speed obviously you know if if you have a shorter draw you're going to have less speed than someone with longer draw it's as a rule of thumb it's about eight feet per second um eight to ten feet per second per inch of draw length so for every inch more you have a power stroke you're going to gain about eight feet per second so naturally i'm sitting most of the time in a 31 inch draw you know my bows are going to be you know 25 feet per second faster than someone like rogan's um just based off you know the average and three inches more draw length um so if by chance you know that bow went from a 28 to a 30 inch draw range in the cam size um you shouldn't lose more than that efficiency. And that's important because on some bows, especially bows with modules, you could go from a 28-inch, uh, or I'm sorry, you could go from, like, let's say, a 29-inch draw down to a 27-inch draw. And instead of you just losing that 16 feet per second, if the cam and the design of the module is poor, instead of you losing 16 feet per second because of those two inches of draw length reduction, you could lose 25. I mean, I've seen as much as 10 more feet per second of speed loss just because of the um, lack of efficiency in the cam. So uh, keep that in mind. With the new Hoyts, you don't have to worry about it as much, but Here's what I'm going to, here's the butt I'm going to throw on that. And this goes for any bow company, not just Hoyt. What you'll find with modules is as you change the draw length, a lot of times how that cam feels in the valley and also the stiffness of the wall could slightly vary. So it's important that if you are in a store and you know you look and they say, okay, the only thing we have on the rack is this bow right here. It's a 30, but we can move it down to 28 and a half for you without a problem. Instead of you pulling that bow back at 30 and seeing how it feels in that longer slot, tell them to go ahead and move that module down to your draw length and allow you to pull it back and shoot it a few times with it in your draw length setting because 
sometimes when you go to one end of the spectrum or the other on a cam or a module, what you'll find is it might get a little spongy. Uh, it might get a better wall, but a very short valley. So in other words, when that breaks over and you know you hit your peak weight and then it starts to break over with the lead off, all of a sudden you hit that wall and it feels like the string is either going forward or back, forward or back. Like there's no in-between, there's no valley, there's no kind of place there where you're able to, to have a little bit of relaxation in your shot. Um, and those can get very demanding and very tough to shoot in those types of positions. So just tell them to put it at your setting and try it. And I think if you do that, um, you're going to find out whether or not you like it. But don't be, a worry, don't be worried about the, the lack of speed. Be more, be more thankful about or thinking about the feel. Um, like last year, um, several of the people that I build bows for, they are right on that bubble. And this year... Uh, had the option of, um, and actually I'm a perfect example because on one of the new Hoyt bows, I actually could fit in a number four cam. Um, but I like the three cam better because of the four cam. I'm at the very bottom of the spectrum and on that bigger and longer axle to axle bow, the wall doesn't feel as good as it does in the smaller cam. So that's why for me, I, I, you know, I've uh, been waiting quite a while for one of my bows uh, just because I want to get it in the cam size that I like. So hopefully that helps you out, man. Uh, glad you got a new bow. I think you're going to like it. Uh, next question here is from Cody Griffin. And Cody sent a picture of his purple Prevail. Looks pretty sweet, dude. Uh, so he says, I finally got my Prevail 37. For now, I'm using my hunting setup accessories, uh, but upgrading later this week. What would you recommend for stabilization? Also, what's your opinion on the Sherlock 400 Supreme? So, um, in relation to your bow, and this, this is actually a question that I get quite often, and I don't know how much I've gone into it. A lot of people want a bow that they can shoot 3D and hunting with, um, or they want to be able to they want to be able to shoot some target stuff, but not necessarily with their full hunting bow. So they kind of ask, "What can I do to make my bow more of a target bow during the non-hunting season, and then change over uh, during the hunting season?" So to answer that question, there's a few things that I change on the bows. One of which is going to be the stabilization. Um, just for me, I a lot of times choose to go with a slightly longer stabilizer just because when I'm on courses and I'm resting in between shots, I just find it very helpful um, to be able to set my stabilizer down on the ground and have my arm relax. When I shoot the short stabilizers, like on my hunting bow, you're constantly having to have the bow in your hand it's really not that easy unless you have a bow stand to put it down on the ground um, and 
I just like having the longer stabilizer on the front just for the simplicity of being able to rest it down on the ground and it takes pressure off my front arm so I can rest my shoulder as I'm out there on the courses. Now, and that's also a reason why I shoot a fairly light um, front stabilizer. My stabilizer setup on my hunting bow as for weight is almost equivalent to what my weight is on my longer setups as well. That's why my longer setups have less weight out on the front because it kind of feels the same for me as my 10-inch hunting stabilizer with a lot more weight. Um, there's a lot of people out there that um, like shooting side rods. I like to, to shoot a side rod uh, when I'm on my target bow, but I don't like a side rod um, during hunting. I just... Keeping systems very simple for hunting is really what I'm all about. Um, you know, I had this conversation. Um, there's a pretty pretty good influx of people that are shooting like quivalizers right now. Um, I think the quivalizer is a cool. It's a cool concept. I'm just I've never used one because there's aspects to it that I don't like. And that's just my personal opinion. It's not because it's a bad product. Um, but once people get out and shoot them in the wind and have to navigate a hunting situation with that on the front of their bow, the reality is most people end up changing it and taking it off. I had a person that's a follower um, to you know the Knock on Nation you're all you would all know who he was if I said it um, I built a bow for him and he bought one put it on there and I didn't say anything I just built it how he sent it to me and set it up and tuned it with that on um, when I was sighting it in there was quite a variation of wind outside and I definitely did not like having you know five arrows in front of me with a crosswind um, so I'm not saying it won't work. I know green tree has one loves it. Um, he's not a long distance shooter guy though, too. I mean, people need to keep that in mind. He doesn't, he doesn't really favor long shots. Um, but this guy did not like it pretty much just told me this. I do not like this thing. It's it kind of sucks in the elements and I just told him well I mean everyone's got their preference some people you know some people go hunting um one of one of uh one of my staff guys Justin Peak, hunts with a long front stabilizer and a full side rod even when he's turkey hunting I mean I probably think his stabilizer hangs out the front of his blind sometimes I don't know uh and he likes it my old buddy Darren Cooper uh, we used to hunt together 10, 15 years ago, and he'd be out there with full side rods. And I mean, his bow was twice as heavy as mine, literally looked like pretty much looked like a bow that you would almost take on a 3D range. Um, so everyone's got their preference. I like to keep it simple. When I change my hunting bow over to a um, kind of a more of a target setup, which for the total archery challenge, I'm still, I'm still up in the air about what I'm gonna shoot there. Most likely, 
I will shoot a modification between a full target setup with a full stabilizer in my hunting setup. I may shoot a slight side rod um, depending on what sight I end up putting on my bow. And I'm probably going to go with a slightly different arrow. So I like using the bow that you're going to have because you really get the feel of, you know, of that bow and you can really get an appreciation of, uh, you know, understanding your cam cycle and your draw curve. But, um, you know, and that's one thing when, with people that go back and forth like that prevail 37, that cam system is going to feel a lot different than your hunting cam. So you want to make sure that you kind of give yourself time to change over, but, other than the stabilizers, um, the arrows, I'll normally put a slightly smaller fletching on just so that I have a little bit less wind drift. And there's two ways to think about that. I do it because I'm trying to maximize my accuracy. Um, so I want a little bit less drag and I know I'm not putting a broadhead on the front. So it's a different situation. The other thing too is I may go with a glue-in point instead of a screw-in point just because I don't like being out on a course and my field tips are rattling around all the time. Um, however, if you're using that target season to actually learn more about your setup and learn um, about, you know, if you want to use all those different elements to kind of get an idea of wind drift or an idea of um, drag, things like that, you know, how your arrow reacts at longer shots with some outside elements. If you shoot the fletchings that you actually hunt with, you're going to learn a lot more about that projectile than you will if you change it. Um, but if you're truly wanting to have the best type of target setup you can with kind of a minimal changeover, then um, I would say a stabilizer that you can manage I really definitely don't overdo the weight. Um, an arrow with a slightly shorter and lower profile vein because you won't have a broadhead to steer. Screwing points uh, are not the best when you're dealing with leagues and having to tighten your points all the time. Um, that's really not that fun. Um, then from there... On the site, you asked about the Sherlock Supreme. I've shot one of those for 20 years. I like them. I know that they're clearing them out because the new um, the new carbon sights coming out from Sherlock, which is supposed to be, they're supposed to start shipping them at the end of May or 1st of June. Um, and they'll, the first ones are all going to have target scopes. The hunting attachment will come um, a little bit later, um, hopefully it'll be out in plenty of time for the hunting season uh, because they're just wrapping up the design on those uh, this week, actually. Uh, when it comes to the aiming apparatus on the site, on my Supreme, I used to just remove my fixed pins that I would have for hunting and I would put on a single scope, normally with a fairly low power lens, um, but I would either put in a fiber optic up pin or one of the dots on the lens. Um, whereas with my hunting bow, all my pins are coming in from the side, um, which I like to have just because of how I've always learned to aim. And I like having multiple pins. 
Uh, from there, the other thing that you might slightly change is going to be uh, your peep site. You may end up uh, finding, especially if you change your front aperture a little bit, like for example, if you go from a five pin uh, housing down to a 35 millimeter single pin scope, then what you'll find is you're going to want to reduce the diameter of that peep so that you can frame your front sight properly with the rear sight. Um, other than that, when it comes to the arrow rest, um, currently I'm actually shooting uh, my limb driven system for my target bow too and I've loved it. Um, for my indoor bow, that's what I've been shooting. Absolutely loved it. Um, I'm not, I'm pretty sure I'm going to shoot the same thing right now. I'm like really um, enjoying these, the little bitty PM 2.0 knock on veins in a six fletch on my larger diameter carbon arrows that I'm going to shoot for 3D. I doubt I'll take those to the total archery challenge just because it'll be longer shots in the canyons and there'll be some wind. So for those, I'll probably build a completely different type of projectile. Um, and then I guess one of the things that I should have by then too is one of the new uh, arrows. So the second Easter egg is going to be, and this is going to hopefully help this question that I talked about earlier of which arrow should I shoot. We're actually working right now. Um, there's going to be, well, this is not 100%. I would say it's 95% done. Uh, working on finalizing the graphics right now. I should have the first prototypes within the next few weeks, but there's going to be two different arrows coming, two different knock-on arrows coming that I'm actually collaborating with Easton on. Uh, so both of these arrows are going to be, they're going to come standard configured how I build and shoot my own. So, uh, you know, they're going to be, uh, Two different options for arrows. Both will be uh, heavy hitters in relation to uh, good FOC and durability in the front end of the shaft. Um, there'll be two different uh, two different shafts, two different materials that'll be coming. So keep your eye out for that. If you're if you're debating buying new hunting arrows for this year, all I would tell you is to hold off on that. Um, it we're really gunning for introducing these new arrows in May. Um, I'm hoping I can actually have some of the first ones um, on several of these hunts that I've had that I'll have over this next month. So uh, hopefully I can put them to use and give you a couple little sneak peeks at those. Um, but other than that, that's kind of it when it comes to changing over your bow. You know, just making that choice of whether or not you're wanting to keep that side rod on for your hunting setup, uh, peep diameter, what type of rest you want to shoot. Like since I'm shooting multiple flet uh, six fletch, I'm going to stick with the limb driven um, setup, uh, just shooting the stock whale tail uh, that I have uh, on the elevate rests. And by the way, elevate rests. Um, some have come in, but not enough for us to put them on the website because 
the back order is far bigger than the what's here right now. So we're waiting for to get another little shipment here so that the amount is big enough to where they're not going to be back ordered as soon as we put them on there again because I know that's frustrating and I'm sorry about it but it's uh there's nothing I can do about it. We're trying our best to keep up with all of you out there and um the rests are just going gangbusters right now. So I appreciate it. Uh, next question here is from 97 Chad. Uh, it's a question about shooting jerseys. So he said, Hey John, I got a Jersey question. What are your thoughts on wearing a manufacturer's Jersey, even though you're not sponsored by them? Um, if you're familiar with atomic archery jerseys, which I am there, who makes our jerseys? Um, you can customize a jersey with different manufacturers and brands. Is this taking advantage of a company? I mean, that's a good ethical question. Um, you know, listen, there's there's a lot of, um, and I was this way, um, and I've actually st- I started this way, and I've gone as far away from that as possible. Um, that's just me. But uh, when I started, if... I was at shoots and started to build relationships with brands. I was doing everything I could um, to promote those logos um, so that the company saw me promoting them. And and eventually it helped me with sponsorships and stuff like that. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, If you're not promoting brands that you want to promote, then your likelihood of becoming a pro staffer with them is going to be reduced. However, there's also, um, you know, when I fell in the poser, I'm going to call it a poser category. Um, I kind of fell into the poser category at one time where, you know, I would literally, I saw all the pros with sponsors on their shirts, which obviously they were um, legitimate pros, but then Um, you know, I went around and tried to literally duplicate those same pro jerseys. So I would walk around with all these patches and everything, which honestly companies put out on their tables at the shoots, you know, they would put those out. They wanted people to put their brand, you know, on their shirts or wear their hat or whatever. Um, but yeah, I would literally walk around as, kind of a runny-nosed amateur with looking like Randy Ulmer. And the truth was, I wasn't. And as soon as someone watched me shoot a few arrows, they would know that I wasn't. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of one of those deals where, obviously, it's cool that the pros are making a good impression to where um, the amateurs are wanting to be like that or wanting to look like that. But... Um, and the, you also, you know, you have to represent a brand in order to hopefully get seen by them in the future. Uh, but yeah, there's also a point where maybe, maybe it goes too far. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, you know, for like the atomic jerseys, there's a lot of people that put knock on on there and I'm all about, you know, every single brand, uh, regardless of what bow you shoot or what arrows you shoot or release you shoot. I don't really care as long as you're in archery. Um, and that's, you know, what our brand is about. And, you know, so there's some people out there that make really, really cool jerseys and 
and do that stuff and uh it's not coming from us it's what they've done uh which is kind of cool but i guess in saying all this now um i've got to the point where you know when i have Hoyt send me stuff like if Hoyt sends me a jacket I intentionally tell them now don't put like my name and pro staff on it um I just I like a Hoyt shirt I like a knock-on shirt I like an Easton shirt I like a Joe Rogan shirt if Joe Rogan sent me a shirt that said uh John Dudley pro staff on it or if on it did um I would probably get to the point now where I maybe not use that one more so than um, a regular one, but that's just that's just kind of where I'm at now. Um, but I know it's a part of the sport. You know, it's it's a lot like NASCAR. I mean, there's probably kids out there on the go kart tracks that are wearing around um, their their racing coveralls that look like they should be a NASCAR driver. And, you know, I guess that's part of making an impression on the younger generation. You want them to want to try to follow in your footsteps, obviously, but there does come a point too, where if you're, if you're out there and you're buying that Jersey, but then you're telling everybody that you're quote unquote, a staffer, then that's, maybe where that line starts to get a little mucky. Um, you know, I, I was on someone's page the other day, somehow or another, someone sent me a question and I kind of looked at their profile to try to see if I can find a picture of them shooting. And in their description, it was, they had their name and then it was like, you know, pro staff, it's such and such pro staff, such and such pro staff, such and such pro staff. It was like all these pro staffer things. And then I look and, you know, they're literally never done anything. They were, you know, kind of a, I don't know, didn't seem like they were even shooting on any of the tours. So there's kind of a fine line there. Some people just want the title. Uh, and I guess in those situations, it's all a matter of what you can live with yourself i guess um but i certainly don't care if anyone out there puts uh the knock on thing on uh knock on logo on their jersey i think i think atomics has it on their file uh just don't do anything crazy don't don't go out and and uh do something stupid on social media and you've got my shirt on that won't be good for anybody that's my only fear uh, next question here is from Bolit underscore outdoors saying, Hey, I'm wanting to get into target archery. I have a cheaper budget and would you recommend an elite victory X or a diamond medalist 38? So this is actually a question that I get often asked in different things. This is asking specifically about models. I don't know if I'm going to get into um, necessarily what model is better than others. I can talk about, you know, when, when you do buy bows, one of the things that you really want to start to look for is components. Um, normally like even with cams, like we talked about earlier, if you have a cam that goes within a huge realm of draw length, it's not going to be 
it's not going to be as good as if you pick something that's more specific to size when it comes to really wanting a super accurate target bow. You'll definitely want a target bow that has a little bit more brace height, um, seven inches for sure or better. Um, a little bit longer axle axle can be arguably more accurate for some people than others. It really depends on your stature and your size. But one thing that I tell people, as soon as they say that they're on a budget, um, what I really want people to think about is the bow is only as good as the parts that you put on it. So, you know, if you go out and you spend 80% or 90% of your budget on this bow, but then you have to go buy a plastic target site that every time you loosen it and tighten it back up, the pin moves to a slightly different spot or it doesn't have a true micro adjust dial where you're not having to unlock something and then tight. Anytime you have to loosen something and move it and then tighten it back up, when you tighten things down more one time more than another, it's going to change that position. Whether it's up or down or left and right or in and out, it'll change it. So that's why like, you know, Sherlock was so popular when it started because it was the first sight where you could push the button, move it to the different positions, and it was locked. It was always surely locked um, without having to retighten and re-loosen. So if you're on a limited budget, make sure that you have a budget to get a good rest, to get a good sight, even the small things like if you're wanting to shoot a lens in your scope, some of the lenses out there are a poor quality glass. So if you, as that lens rotates in the scope, your actual focal point will move too and your impact points can change. I've seen this several times on people that are shooting um, little dots on their lens. And as their lens, you know, if they ever loosen their housing and tighten it back up, if that lens moves to different areas, how their eye is seeing that target changes too. One of the ways they used to show this was um, some of the better lens companies would have a laser that shot through through the lens and then you could grab the actual lens itself and spin it. And if you spun it and that laser moved high and low and almost moved in an oblong or weird shaped position on the target, it was telling you that it didn't have true optical center. Whereas one that did have true optical center, as you spun that lens, the laser would stay directly perfectly down the center um, on the target. So little things like that make a big difference. Um, what I tell people is, depending on your budget, look at the accessories and, and try to factor in what you can buy for accessories. If for some reason you realize, well, I can do good on the bow, but my accessory, you know, I'm going to end up having to put a whisker biscuit on this thing or something. Um, then at that point, you might really want to look at... Um, a previous year's model uh, because there's kind of this, you know, I do this often with things that I buy. I'll either decide, um, I did it, I do it on my cars, I do it on my cars all the time. 
I'll normally buy my vehicles as soon as they're trying to get rid of last year's models because for me, I feel like I can get a truck with more features at the same price as a lower end one that's that's brand new like this year. Maybe they have a new color paint. Maybe it has a new um, sat nav system in it. Maybe, you know, whatever. Um, as long as the reviews are good on that old one, I'll actually buy one that's clearing out and that way I can get more features for it. So what I'm saying with that is sometimes you can look around and find a target bow that was the cream of the crop last year or the year before. You can find someone that's barely used one and that bow will actually be a better choice for you if you save money on the bow and then you're able to put good money into the accessories as well. Um, I'm actually doing that right now. Um, one of a guy that I'm getting ready to teach how to shoot archery. Um, I'm actually going to get him a carbon defiant 34 from last year. That was a great bow. It's an awesome bow. He's got a budget and he's going to be able, you know, he wants to come on a hunt. So, you know, it's like, dude, this is a great bow. I mean, this was a, it was an awesome bow. Literally six months ago, it was the best bow you could buy on the market. Now you can buy this bow and with the money that you're going to save with this bow, you literally are going to be able to, to, you know, to either get any accessory that you want that's high end and good, or you're going to be able to throw this extra cash, uh, towards this hunt, which is going to be cool. So when it comes to being on a budget, regardless of target bow, hunting bow, those are going to be my pieces of advice for you. Factor in the whole package, not just the bow, and decide what you can buy. Make sure that those other parts, you know, I say this all the time, a bow is as only, only as good as the strings you put on it. An arrow is only as good as the fletchings you put on it. You know, it's so you got to make sure that you're able to complete that whole package. Otherwise, you're just not going to have the most accurate setup that you could. Um, okay, next question here is from Damn That Savage. <laughs> I like that. Um, so he's asking, have I made a video on proper bow maintenance, storage, or upkeep? And that's a really good question. I have not. Um that's actually how I got my start with knowing how to work on bows. Um, when I first started working at a small shop in Dundee, Illinois, it wasn't that small actually, it was pretty big. We did, I don't know, maybe 500 bows a year. Um, but my job uh, was literally to come in. There were, especially during J July, everybody would bring their bows in to just get like quote unquote tune-ups. Um, and so I would come in and there would be these racks, literally racks that were, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 feet long and one down low, one up high. And there would just be racks of bows, every single kind of bow you could think of. There would just be racks of them with little tags on them. And the tag would say, this needs a new rest. Uh, this needs new cams put on, new draw length. This one needs a summer tune-up. 
this one has broke limbs or whatever. So that's why, um, and I don't think I'd be in that position now just because there's so many bows that are continually changing and I don't get them all. But at that time, literally you could take five different kinds of bows, take them all apart, put them in pieces, put them in a brown paper sack, shake it around and throw them out on the floor. And I'd be able to crawl around and say, okay, this is a PSE washer. This is a top hat from a high country uh, limb. This, you know, obviously you know what the limbs are and say on there, but I could pick apart every single one of those. I could recognize axles depending on the type of E-clip that would have been on the end. And that's kind of what gave me my start to being a technical guy. It was just literally learning how to work on hundreds and hundreds of bows. Um, But what I found when it comes to maintenance is, you know, the most maintenance that you're going to have is really making sure that um, just the overall inspection by observation are there strands cut on your string? Is the string fuzzed to the point where it looks like, you know, an old rope at the lake where you swing it on a tire around? Um, do you see any visible like nicks or chips or D lambs in your limb, your cams? Uh, do you see any sharp edges on your cams where you've dropped your cam on a rock or bumped it on a rock or something like that? Um, all that is really, really important. And I'm trying to think like on the cams, I thought I did something not too long ago. It might've been on my Insta story, um, which is unfortunate, but you know, I actually whacked my cam on, uh, I think I whacked it on a rock, uh, when I was down in Oklahoma and I actually folded the cam in towards the string a little bit and it had a sharp edge. So I had to, you know, I could see it again, visual observation. I looked at it. I could see that that cam was the, the actual string track. It was rounded in towards the string. So I put my bow in the press and when I took the pressure off the string and I tried to move that cam, the string would kind of pop in and pop out and it would, it was starting to actually shave away um, some of that serving. So in other words, it would cut that string um, if I shot it very much. So I took a, a very, very fine file and filed that away to where the you know to where it wasn't cutting, it wasn't um, abrasive and it didn't have a sharp edge. Uh, with the string, if you notice servings have slipped, like for example, if you look where your arrow clips on the string, if the D loop has a big separation or if you see spacing in the serving, or if you put your if you clip your arrow on there and you kind of grab the whole thing and you kind of push up or push down, if it slides up and slides down, that's a problem. That that's the kind of stuff that that needs maintenance. That might need to be reserved. Maybe you need a new string. For sure, if you have any strands hanging off, you might need a new string. If your string is to the point where it it looks like it's almost dry rotted or uh, fuzzed up and just bone dry, you know, if you take wax and put string wax on and rub it in really good with a piece of leather, but it still just looks dried and cracked, then that's going to be time to replace the string cable. 
Um, otherwise, going through your whole setup with uh, Q-tips, I just I wipe everything down. You know, you could have some wet wipes, wipe everything down, go through all your cam tracks and stuff with Q-tips. Try to clean, you know, your site up in anywhere you have gook. Try to clean it up. Um, soap and water cleaning off your if you have an older boat with a cable slide um, soap and water and cleaning off your cable slide really good is important um, if you have a cable slide replacing that little plastic slide itself um, can be really smart depending on how many arrows you shoot um, other than that as long as you're not pulling that bow back and hearing like a creak or a click if you're hearing like a creak or a click, that might be, you know, an indicator that maybe um, where the limb is pivoting on the limb pocket, it might be really dry, and that that um, that uh, they normally have like a graphite-based um, uh, lubricant that they put on the rockers of the limb pocket, so that when you pull it back, it doesn't kind of click or creak there. If that's happening, then obviously you got to tell your shop, hey, this, you know, every time I pull back, I kind of get a little creak or a click, and they'll re-lubricate those spots. When it comes to axles and eclips, if you know you've had your bow out in poor conditions and it's been just getting wet and drenched and you haven't done a good job of drying it off properly, um, which I normally try to get mine close to moving air, and you know, be careful with your with your bow. Don't um, if you get it really saturated, I know you want to dry it off, but don't put it too close to a fire. Don't literally put it directly on heat. Um, if you dry it out too fast, you'll start to dry out your strings and you don't really want to do that. Um, but you can always have the archery shop or if you have a press at home, you can remove your axle, slide your axle out. And if you see that the axle has rust or corrosion starting on that axle then replacing axles is a cheap thing to do um, and once you slide that axle out you can actually take a q-tip and clean on the inside of the bearing on your cam um, other than that that's kind of the simple stuff that you need to do again visual inspection is important cams being dinged strings being cut servings moving or serving separation um, D lambs or you know chunks out of your limbs are things to look for. Um, cracks in the center of the limb or like full delamination where literally one whole layer of the limb is separated off the other. Those are problems. Um, on like for example on my Hoyts, there's times where I'll set my bow down and a rock hits the very you know the very edge of the limb and if it hits it hard enough to cut into the actual glass fibers you could get a lift um, on one of the corners the corners are kind of a common spot on any limb where there's a lift if it's right on the corner it's really probably not going to hurt anything uh, a lot of times you can just peel that right off you'll be fine or you can delicately kind of clip it off with a little fingernail clip no more than just the piece that's there and you can put a, a just a drop of uh super glue on it um, but that's just for minimal like almost like a hairline 
um, D-lamb just on corners, like I said, where you drop it on something sharp and it cuts in a few fibers to where it does that. Uh, otherwise, that's kind of it. You don't want to have a lot of lubricant on there. Lubricant attracts dust. So if you put a bunch of grease on there and you put grease on your cams and everything, all that dust and stuff that I talked about earlier in the podcast, that stuff is just going to stick to it more so if you have it on there. Uh, okay, let's see here. This is uh, Benoit Rec. Benoit Trick, maybe? I don't know. Um, he's saying so... Um, He's kind of bummed out because he's got some health issues relating to archery. Um, I snapped a tendon on my left arm, and I'm a left-handed shooter. And I'm probably going to have to get surgery. Um, I know that it's different for everybody, but I also know that you went through something similar to this. I wanted to know how your recovery process was and what advice that you could give me. I'm really afraid of not being able to shoot again. Um... And I've followed you for quite a while now um, and really would be happy to hear your advice. Um, Let's see here. Um, I'm really disappointed and I'm worried about not being able to shoot again. So, you know, I've found is, and believe me, I was stressed out to beat the band. I was, you know, I was losing sleep for sure about whether or not I would be able to shoot the same. Obviously, mine was in my left shoulder, which is my stability shoulder. So I knew I would heal, but I also didn't know if I would be able to shoot 300 rounds again. I didn't know how much movement I was going to start seeing in my scope. Um, All that stuff was fears, I guess, that I was thinking about. Um. And I think they're common. I think that um, if something's important to you, obviously you're going to stress about not being able to do it anymore. Um, so don't feel bad about that, man. I mean, everyone's going to stress out if they have to go through a surgery of any kind. Um, but what I will tell you is the more I've talked about this, the more people that have come to me and showed me things that they've had done or have had to have done. And, you know, I feel like now my shoulder thing that I went through is kind of a drop in the bucket compared to so many stories I've been told from other people. I kind of realize now that um, there's people that deal with way, way worse every single day. So, you know, tendons, ligaments, uh, I don't know, labrums, all this stuff is is pretty common. It's wear and tear. The older we get, that stuff catches up with us. Um, just repetitive movements over time, things start to wear. That's just a reality of life. But the cool thing is there's the most advanced type of medical, um, I guess, repair and healing right now that there's ever been, ever. So it's not like... Um, it's not like you're at a disadvantage. You're you're at an advantage of being able to hurt this during a time where we literally have the best options available for repair and also rehab. The one thing that I'll tell you is 
I was I committed to myself and I committed to my doctor and I told him straight up that I would not shoot my bow um, right-handed. That was my I did say that um, right-handed and use my left shoulder until he told me that I could. And I said it doesn't. I said and I want to make sure that when that happens, it's the right time. So I rehabbed for six months before I shot a bow with my left arm. Um, And a lot of people thought I was maybe taking it too long. But what I will say is my left shoulder is now probably the best joint in my entire body. Um, The range of motion, the flexibility, no pain, the stability... Literally, I think I might even be steadier now than I once was, Um, but it's all due to me going through the flexibility classes, doing the rehabs, being adamant about being there, not trying to go gung-ho on the weight, just really slowly working myself up and doing exactly what the PT people said, and it worked out good. So uh, do that, and hopefully... It'll work out for you. Uh, Let's see here. Next question is um, from, it looks like, I think it might be Taxis. T-A-K-I-S 8787. Um, It's pretty much saying uh, that he's been hunting his whole life uh, out of Quebec for whitetail and moose and wanted to buy a bow to start off for whitetails what poundage uh would i recommend for a beginner and he also says i'm a strong dude though i can handle shit i don't want a girly bow (laughs) um all right well listen here's the thing you gotta you gotta make sure that you go in that shop and regardless of what poundage it says you gotta make sure that you can grab that bow put on a release or whatever the shop tells you to do lift that bow straight up to your side so you're in like half of a t formation and be able to pull that string back towards your face if you're having to cock your hips lift the bow above your shoulder push and pull at the same time if you're having to do that it's too much weight for you if you can't pull that bow back while you're sitting down if you sit down on a chair and pull the bow if you can't do that it's too much weight for you whether it's girly or not Um, you could always buy a new limb sticker that says 70 or 80 pounds and put it on your bow, which I've I've actually seen people do that. had a guy that had a bow that was a hundred pounder, had a hundred pound sticker on it. And I, I said, this is a hundred pounds. He goes, oh yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I mean, I built hundred pounders every so often at Matthews. There was only a few of us at the factory that could pull the hundred pound bows. So I just thought, oh, I haven't pulled a hundred pounder in a while. So I grabbed that thing and almost broke his limbs in half because it was about 70 pounds. And if you're going to pull a hundred pounder, you kind of got to get into it pretty quick. Uh, so yeah, he was, he was kind of just, uh, trying to look like he didn't have a, a normal bow. So if you can't pull, uh, a normal weight, then just get a weight you can pull. Uh, that's my recommendation. 60 to 70 pounds, anywhere in there is going to be good, actually for whitetail or for moose. Um, The main thing to keep in mind is depending on how much you practice and depending on what poundage you do go with, 
just choose a broadhead that suits that. I mean, if you're going to be shooting in the 60 pound range or the low 60s, don't be afraid to go out and get a nice, you know, good flying compact compact fixed blade head. Um, you know, I like a muzzy trocar. Uh, you could, if you like a cut on impact head, you could shoot a um, like a G5 Montac, um, something like that. That's going to cut really fast, pop that hole. Um, otherwise, if you get in, you know, if you don't have a problem with 70 pounds or so, then you can uh, get into one of those other ones. Get into a tripan or something like that, and you know, you're going to be able to kill either one of those. I've killed both of those animals with both of the types of heads that I've talked about. Um, but don't be surprised, man. Even if you're super strong, these are new little muscles. Uh, last week when I was down in Austin, I taught uh, Kyle Kingsbury how to shoot. He is a freaking Goliath. I mean, he's he looks like he's he looks like me for stature um kind of bred with um hulk and randy couture (laughs) that's what he looks like and he struggled to pull the bow back smooth and it was 70 pounds and i'm telling you he could probably like he could probably break both my arms off and 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 whip me with them but he struggled with bow because it's slightly different muscles. You're just not going to be used to them. So um, the more you do it, they'll build up really fast. But don't do more than you control. Uh, pulling something back from a seated position is definitely a good move. All right. Um, next question here is from M Segura twelve oh four. It's pretty much saying. What made me choose choose a Traeger smoker over other pellet grills? I'm looking to upgrade my current gas grill. Uh, okay. Well, this is an easy one for me because, one, um, I had never cooked on one. I had used a smoker, and I hated smokers. Smokers, for me, the smoker, it looked like, you know, I had one. I forget the brand looked like a mini refrigerator, but it was a smoker. It was a pain in the ass. Um, Propane, honestly, grilling was not something I did all the time because, um, you know, flare-ups were a pain in the butt. Um, Here, you know, where we live in Wisconsin with snow and everything, it seems like burners and stuff, corrosion. I was replacing those every year, just got to be a pain in the butt. A lot of times the regulators would get weirded out and have to replace the lines for the regulators. Um, So Traeger actually contacted me first and, you know, they just reached out and said, Hey, we, um, we, well, one Tyler, who you've heard on the podcast before, he's friends with a a mutual friend of mine. And Tyler was at Traeger and kind of said, I'd love to get Dudley using one of our grills. And he said, oh, well, you should just call him. So he called me, and I gave him a standard response. I told him flat out, I'm not going to take, I don't want to, I don't want any type of a deal. I don't want, you know, I don't, I don't want to take anything from you unless I know that I like it. So I gave him my credit card. I told him I wanted him to have my credit card. I wanted him to charge me for the grill. 
and I would buy it and I would use it. And if I liked it, then I would talk to him later about, you know, whatever else might happen in the future. So literally I bought this grill. It came in on a Friday. I put it together Friday afternoon and I did the burn off and then I just cooked hamburgers and it was really easy. And I was like, holy cow, this was so simple. And I even like the fact I could have Harry or Sharon go out there, flip the switch to on, turn it to smoke, let it smoke for five minutes, turn it to the temperature you want, put the food on, cook it. You don't have to worry about lifting the lid. I literally told them what I read in the directions. And then I said, when you're done, turn the switch all the way to cool down. It'll take about 20 minutes and it'll turn itself off. And that was it. Then everyone said the burgers were unbelievable. They were like for sure the moistest we'd ever had. Um, So then the next day I thought, you know, I was kind of sitting there on that Friday night reading um, the little book that comes with the grill. And I thought, I'm just going to pick a few of these. So I did ribs. Um, then I did some, uh, white tail. And then I did, I think I did pork chops. And literally by the end of Sunday, I called Tyler and said, dude, this thing is unbelievable. So, uh, that was that. And then honestly, more than anything, uh, I'm a people person. I like good people. I like surrounding myself with good people. I like surrounding myself with good companies. There's been times where I've worked with companies and you guys have seen me maybe try a brand or a product and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, all of a sudden I'm gone and I'm away from that product. I'm not going to talk bad about the issue, but a lot of times it comes down to people Either there's a failure with the product and then it's a matter of how those people deal with it because if they don't deal with those things right, then that means they're not dealing with you guys right as well and I don't want that. Um, Traeger is an awesome company and literally uh, I'm going there to do this school because I know that everyone goes there is going to have a whole new appreciation for this company the story behind it and the people there and just how awesome they are. Um, so if there's another one out there that's better, um, awesome. I mean, and honestly, I expect Traeger is literally taking over the grilling world right now. And I expect there to be people coming in that are going to want some of that pie. The difference is I'm going to kind of be the same type of guy I am for everything else. I'm just going to be loyal to what's worked for me and what I like and go from there. Uh, let's see. Next question. This was from, uh, Pomatoni. I don't know. Uh, he was asking specifically about, um, taking his knock to it apart. Says that he has some pocket fuzz inside of there. Um, so sometimes it isn't cocking and wanted to know if I was doing a video on how to do maintenance. Yes, I will. Uh, do a video for that to show everybody. One thing I'll tell you right away is when you open those releases, very, very smart to put them inside of a Ziploc bag. And as you do that and you open these up, keep them in a Ziploc bag because if you open them up and one of the levers kind of moves to the side and one of the cocking springs or something kind of boings out, 
it doesn't shoot across the room and you literally never see it. You would never see some of those little springs shoot across the room. So um, opening them up while they're in a Ziploc bag is probably one of the best tips I can give you. And I'll show you how to do that in a video soon enough. Uh, let's see here. Casey underscore Hatley saying, um, I've got a good question for the podcast. I've been shooting X after X and then out of nowhere, I'll shoot to the left. I'll concentrate on every single step of my form as I did before, but I can't stop shooting left. I won't touch the bow. Um, I used to, to think that it was the bow, uh, but I won't touch it now. And then I can pick it back up later on and shoot x's again it'll shoot groups at 30 yards and it will group um on top of each other but it just the groups move to the left and then the cycle repeats so this could be a couple things one it could be um it could be either your arrow rest you know if you grab your arrow rest and you kind of hold both sides of it and move it to the left and right um sometimes rests will have play left and right and as those things are shot sometimes they work towards one side and then they'll work their way back towards the other the other thing too is cam spacing so sometimes um there's actual spacing between the limb and the cam and if you can grab your cam on the top or the bottom and actually pull it pull that cam like towards the left or then pull it towards the right if it clicks right and then clicks left then obviously you've got slop and play in that cam and that can move your groups especially at the longer distances now the next thing is going to be hand position and this is something that i actually worked specifically with one of my students last week down in austin um he noticeably shoots left to me um, often so I did not allow him to move his sight I simply had him work on his front hand position and seeing how his hand position and how the pressure you know even if the grip is in the perfect spot of his hand if sometimes he puts pressure on the front of his risers with his four fingers where that groups versus other times where he's putting you know he kind of twists his wrist just a little bit so his thumb is pushing on that uh, riser as well uh, the front hand has so much to do with that the next thing um, especially when it comes to left if your right-handed shooter is going to be facial pressure um, a lot of people the longer they hold they start to turn their head towards the towards the release hand and the reason that is is because you know your head wants to face straight out of your chest forward but when you're shooting archer you turn your head to the left it's pointing your chin is pointing over your shoulder but the more you start to relax and the longer you hold that position your head naturally wants to just pivot back towards the center depending on your form and your technique and where your arrow is sitting on your face as your head starts to go back to the center of your body if that arrow shaft is close to your chin line you'll start to put pressure on the arrow shaft with the chin and thus you're going to start putting those arrows out to the left so work on those few things and hopefully they help you out dude appreciate it
Uh, next question here is from Daniel underscore McKenzie 79. He's asking, could I show how to build arrows like the Superdrive 23s? Um, he wants to get some but doesn't know how to put in the knock bushings. So the knock bushings um, and on the super drives you have a choice for different knock bushings because you can either shoot like a G knock or a um, S knock, you know, so you have different bushings that you can put in the back. Really all you need is a dab of hot melt. Um, you want to warm up the hot melt glue first then as that's kind of warm and tacky the hot melt glue warm up you know and you're holding that bushing with a pair of pliers warm up the bushing um you know you don't want to get it blazing hot but warm it up enough um, to where it's warm then kind of bring that uh hot melt stick back in towards the flame and just put a dab of hot melt on the back of that or on the bottom of that bushing and then just slide it in the arrow shaft. You don't need to heat the carbon shaft at all. Just heat the glue or the component. But a little bit of hot melt's nice. That way if you end up cracking the back of that arrow and you dent in that bushing but the arrow is still good, you can just slightly warm up the very tip of the bushing itself. Uh, just warm it up just enough to where you could grab it with pliers and pull it out and replace it. Um, without damaging the arrow if you use like epoxy or or super glue as soon as you dent or cave in that bushing you're going to have to literally cut the shaft off to get that out of there so you don't want to do that um, but it's just simple hot melt man no different than gluing in a point just remember on carbon arrows you don't want to put the carbon arrow in the flame you only want to warm up the hot melt glue then warm up the 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 insert or you know or the bushing or the field point warm that up then re-warm up the glue touch the point on there so you can get some of that glue that's melted on there and then put it in the shaft and kind of turn as you go in let it dry completely and then once it dries you should be able to just roll the excess off almost like a donut so that's all you got to do man Appreciate it, and uh, have a good one, Daniel. All right, let's see. Getting close to the end here. Uh, next question. Um, this is from, looks like, Mystery075, but he spelled mystery different. But uh, saying, hey, John, I got a question regarding limb stops. Currently, I'm using them both, and he's talking specifically on a Pro Defiant. Um, so on the Pro Defiant, for those of you who aren't Hoyt people, um, they actually have stops that stop on the cables, but then you could also add a limb stop to one of the cams to where when the, it hits your limb, uh, it gives you even a more solid wall. Um, sir, said currently I'm using both the limb stop and the cable stops and it seemed to work well with my wrist strap release. Now that I switched to a handheld release, I feel that the solid back wall makes me creep forward. What should I do? Um, so, and he's asking, do I take them off one or both cams? So, what I would tell you is, uh, as you learn to shoot a handheld release, you're going to learn that there's a couple different things one depending on how you're pulling it or where you're anchoring if your elbow position is low 
you won't really have the leverage to pull on that back wall as you will if that elbow is up in the correct position. So that elbow needs to be up a little bit because it's a lot like it's a lot like a tire iron. Getting that elbow up allows you to have more leverage to pull nicely on that back wall. The other thing too is if you're um, if you're focused on maybe aiming a little more with a handheld release versus a lot of people with a wrist strap are kind of doing drive-by uh, shooting at the target. Uh, people start to aim more than pull. Even though you feel like you're pulling, you start to aim. If you aim a lot, a lot of times when that front shoulder starts to collapse, you're actually cre- you actually creep forward on the bow versus being back on that hard wall. Um, you know, just depending on the style of shooter you were with your wrist strap shooter, you know, especially if you're someone that locked your thumb behind your neck, you just may have never learned how to properly be on the back wall and pull through that shot. This is actually identifying a pretty important thing um, that you need to learn to do, and that is pull through the wall and on the wall. Um, if you're creeping forward, it's not, you know, what it's telling you is you've really never pulled through the shot properly. You've just kind of aimed, pointed, maybe locked your thumb behind the neck if that's what you did. I'm not sure on that part. Um, and then just kind of hit the trigger when the time was right. Um, the fact that you're creeping now, it's actually a very good thing for you to know and for you to understand because one, you're going to be able to correct it and you're going to shoot better at the end. Um, taking, I did not shoot the limb stop on my pro defiance and carbon defiance myself. Um, and most of my buddies bows that I built, I was the same way because what I've also learned is once you're at the other side of the spectrum versus where you're at now, once you're someone who does pull and you do have a good pull against the wall, what I found is when the wall is too hard and too solid, that if you're aggressive with pulling anyway, that you can actually start to give yourself a little bit more movement in the front because there isn't any give um, as you're pulling on that wall. So if it's just super solid and super tight, um, some bows are like this where they have dual limb stops. Um, you know, I think Botex have them. Uh, there's a couple other brands where the wall is just so hard. I mean, it literally feels like you can't budget. If you're dynamic and you're pulling against that wall hard and there's no give at all there, then a lot of times the front arm will move off the target with that extra pull that you're doing. So then you really have to learn this fine line of how much can I pull um, and without moving myself off the front target and also really learning how to use preload is so important learning preload on the trigger and how much pressure you put on your trigger before you know you have good tension on the wall but then you get that thumb to the trigger and how much pressure do you need on that trigger so that as you start to pull that elbow back it fires without you having to literally feel like you're pulling the bow in half or pull your front arm off the target. And that's why, you know, these right release trainers that we have now, um, and I think I think there's still a few in stock um, on the website. 
um, knockonarchery.com. There's a knock-on uh, release trainer, which I brought in um, for learning this, but also, you know, I was really aggressive about bringing them in because with the two smooth releases, um, people learning how to shoot a hinge, you know, they're not they're not designed to imitate you what a bow feels like. What they're designed to do and what they help you learn to do is they help you understand your trigger and your feel, your anchor, learning your anchor position on your face and how much, you know, how changing your hand position might change the position of that trigger on your thumb, um, how much thumb you can put on that trigger so that as you start that pull, you're able to get a, a quick and clean um, trigger activation with minimal movement. That's what those are so good for. And if you really want to learn your release, then practicing with that knock-on right release trainer is the way to go. I mean, 100%. I take mine with me on my plane. It's wood. Uh, it's string. You literally can travel with this thing. Um, I, I shoot it all the time. I have several laying around my house so that as I walk by one, um, I can just pick one up and, you know, literally work on my release and just get to really understand my release and how it feels in my hand. And if you do that, you'll be surprised at how well all this other stuff comes together, including, you know, creeping on the back wall and things like that. But that is an identifier. You definitely want to work on that. You don't want to be creeping forward on the wall. And it's more in relation to technique, more so than what the bow's doing. Um, so hopefully that helps you. Uh, let's see here. Kay Nelson. This is the last question. Uh, actually, I think I got two more. Kay Nelson saying, um, I'm right-handed, but left eye dominant. I always, I've always shot right-handed and can shoot, um, with both eyes, uh, open at closer yard yardages if I focus really hard. But at the further distances, it's not so easy. My question is, would it be wise for me to, to switch to left-handed shooting um, or just work um, on my eye? If you're truly left-eye dominant, you really need to go left-handed or you need to shoot an eye patch. There's no way around that. Um, just dealt with this with a kid last week. Um, I know it can be frustrating. A buddy of mine had been fighting this for years and years and years. Finally got super frustrated with it because um, what you'll find is if you're left eye dominant, your pins at 20 yards will be at one setting. Then your 30 yard pin is going to need to be out further left than the 20 yard pin. Then your 40 yard pin is going to have to be even further left than your 30 yard pin. So essentially you're going to, your pins each distant, your pin is going to have to be left, 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 left. That's just, it's not good to deal with. And you're just, and the reality is you can't even do that with most pins. So what happens is people just end up closing their eyes so they can hit correctly. Um, but what happened to my buddy was he went on a hunt uh, it was kind of low light, so he was squinting down. He couldn't see through his peep that good, so he just, without even thinking about it, opened his left eye up so he could gather more light. Ended up, you know, he said making just a perfect shot, but he hit like almost a foot left and ended up losing the animal. And he was just sick about it. And he just said, that's it. I'm freaking going, I'm changing. I'm going back to uh, left-handed or I'm going to go to left-handed. I'm not going to keep dealing with this. 
made the switch to left-handed, took him a couple months, and he's just like, man, I wish I would have done it earlier. So I know it's a pain, uh, but that is what you're going to have to deal with, dude. Sorry about that. Um, the last question here is from Nathan.r.cook saying, I'm having trouble staying relaxed in my bow hand. Um, is there a podcast where you talk about this? Um, so yeah, with your bow hand, being relaxed in your front bow hand has a lot to do with how your draw length is actually set up to you because if your posture is not correct and if your bone alignment isn't correct, then your front wrist, elbow, shoulder, literally that front part of your T formation, um, if that's not supporting the bow, then it gets really difficult because you have to start holding on to the bow, holding on to the handle. So when people have a really bent uh a really bent arm you know the more bent your front arm is or the more compressed your front shoulder is a lot of times the more people grab and have to hold on to that front bow the other thing too is if you have a bow that jumps out of your hand like a lot of the older bows they propelled forward when you shot versus the newer bows the limbs are so parallel that when they when they fire, they go up and down, so they counteract one another, and they literally, you know, they kind of neutralize where that bow is trying to project because one's going up, one's going down. They're not both going from back to forward. Um, so all those things can factor in. If you've got a bow that's launching forward and you're getting the habit of always grabbing it, grabbing it so it doesn't project out onto the floor in front of you, then people just start to squeeze that grip because they're worried about that. Um, the next thing is just having that in the right position. You know, if you put it way out on your thumb, a lot of people are grabbing the riser more. Um, but you know, you really want um, that grip from the cradle of your between your thumb and your index finger. You want the top of the grip right there where you're pressed up against the top of the shelf. Then you want to kind of lean your wrist down so that the bottom of the grip is pretty much touching the pad of your thumb. Um, if you move your thumb and your pinky towards one another, you'll notice that there's a main line that kind of goes from the saddle of your of your you know your thumb right down to the center of your palm. That line that gets created when those two fingers go towards one another, that's what's called your lifeline. If you draw a marker on that lifeline, you don't ever want to cross over that lifeline to the finger side of, of the hand. You want to stay on the thumb pad side of that lifeline. And essentially the base of your grip is almost going to be right where your lifeline comes down your hand to the wrinkle that's going to be on your wrist that's really where you want to connect and if you're doing that then that pressure of the front bow is going to come all the way through your bone alignment and it's going to allow you to support that bow without having to squeeze around the grip so work on that stuff dude and i think you're going to be all set hey everybody it's been an awesome morning uh crushed through quite a bit of time here so i've got to get 
knocking. I've got uh, some bows to build. I got a release maintenance video I got to get done. I'm polishing up this website. What? And I got a workout. So I just uh, I just recently trimmed my winter fuzz off my legs, so they're looking they're looking pretty freaking white. But I got to get some some muscle pumped into these things. So I'm gonna go put on some miles on the gravel. So we'll talk at you later. Appreciate y'all. Make sure you uh, make sure you like posts. If you like, if you see an Instagram post, you're like, hey, that was cool. Double tap it, dudes. It helps me because everyone that supports the podcast and everything that I'm doing, um, which, as most of you know, I do it for you for free, but I don't do it for everybody for free. So the people that help me give you free stuff. They monitor how much you're looking. So double tap, do it, and uh, write a review if you want to. Or you know, give me five stars for the podcast. Unless you think it's dumb, then you can give it four and a half. Um, all right, we'll check at you later. Talk at you later. Sharon always laughs. Talk at you later isn't a real thing, but I say it a lot. So I'm going to talk at you later, or you can listen to me later. See everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com